Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, Shiloh, we are doing Doctrine and Covenants sections 94, 95, 96, 97. Back to the short sections now. <laughs> I think next week we get to do section 98. How about that? Oh, that'll be interesting. Yes, it will. We've already done like two podcasts on section 98. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get into some real peace studies kind of stuff with section 98. Man, this is going to have some, uh, it's going to have some politics into it. It's going to have some renouncing war. It's going to have, yeah, I've got all sorts of stuff in 98. We're not even, I don't even think we're going to get out of 98 next week. (laughs) We might not. So yeah, looking forward to that. But. Here we go, sections 94, 95, 96, 97. For shorthand, that's 94 through 97. Sure, you can say that too. But uh, (laughs) I just wanted to emphasize that. (laughs) That we're doing every single one of those this week. Well, we're probably doing 94, 95, 97, to be honest. (laughs) 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 So section, Yeah. yeah, it's like there's the historical context to this is a little a little hard to to uh, find your way through um, because we've got the church in both Missouri and Ohio right now. There's a lot of traveling going on in between. You know, the church is trying to move into Missouri, but, you know, there's a lot of contention going on there. There's also some contention going on in Kirtland, but not near as much as that's is happening in Missouri. And as it turns out, some of these sections, particularly section 94, they weren't aware until more recently the actual date that this revelation was received. And so in earlier editions of the Doctrine and Covenants, I believe um, it says, what, May 6th? Is that what yours says, Shal? Yeah, so my my section of the of the DNC says May 6th. Let me see here again. I always forget. Um, August 2nd. I have the 2009 version. Yeah, yeah. So 2013 version. The, the newest edition, so to speak, they went back and made some various corrections in the historical context, a few things here and there in the actual text, but very little, mostly in the, the section headings where they explain some historical context. And this is this was um, of somewhat note to historians because date on the revelation was wrong. And when they went back and looked at all the papers, they realized this is actually August 2nd on this. So I don't know how much that really changes for our context here, and we probably won't get into it even if it did, but uh, it's just something to just something worth noting, maybe. Yeah, it just means it just means that section 95 should be in front of section 94. Right. And potentially in in front of uh, that section 94 should actually be after 96. It, it, it should be section 96. So <laughs> Right. <laughs> Yeah, which does throw a little bit of, at first, confusion, and then you kind of step back and there's a little more clarity to it. Because section 94 talks about building this house, and then section 95 is a chastisement for not building the house. 
and you think, man, this, there's not much time going on here between these revelations, like less than a month and we're already getting after him. But as it turns out, section 95 is a chastisement for a previous revelation, even going back to section 88, where they were told to build a house. Then there's the chastisement. Then there's the revelation about more specifics on what they need to do. And so it kind of makes a little more sense, flows a little better um, in terms of the dates than just like this less than a month time period, right? Where they're already getting chastised for it. Section 96, I said this when we were talking about it before, Shiloh. I, I read through it three times and nothing just like, nothing really impressed on my mind about it. So there's some historical importance to it, but this time reading through it, I didn't, nothing jumped out at <laughs> me, right? Yeah, poor Newell K. Whitney and John Johnson, <laughs> I guess. You know, they got their own section, but we're just, oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> So um, moving over into then section 97, quite a bit of stuff here that I that I marked up that some metaphorical uh, discussion, again, the word, use of the word chastened as we got back in section 95. So I think we can have a, a discussion about that. These uh, discussions about building the house and, and sacrifice and Zion being the pure in heart. And so all of these themes that are, are really kind of mulling right now, I would say, in the the cauldron of this early church and what they end up coming out to be in long-term Latter-day Saint um, doctrine and, and theology is is an interesting discussion. But, um, you know, trying to get at what they really meant for the saints at this time um, sometimes is, is kind of difficult. And that's kind of one discussion. And then the other discussion we can have is, well, what do they mean to us individually right now at this moment and living in a totally different type of historical context in in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways living in a different historical context almost 200 years later. So going back to section 94 here. So um, here, the again, this is speaking out of chronological order. If we were, if we were to start with section 95, maybe it would make a little more sense, but section 94 is some very specific instructions on them building a house. Now this was is sort of a proto temple. You know, we talk about the um, the Kirtland Temple as being sort of this proto temple, um, but this is like a proto proto temple, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and there's there's specific instructions about like how big it's supposed to be and, and and measurements and everything. And this is very reminiscent of the Temple of Solomon, right? Um, in the Old Testament, where it's like given specifically how how wide it's going to be and how tall it's going to be and just all these very specific measurements. And and I thought it was kind of odd for there to be very specific measurements of something that, you know, on the frontier of of the uh, American West at this time, um, that you'd be very specific in your measurements. Like, it almost seems to me to be like, hey, you know, however big a log you can get, let's make a house out of that, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's not, <laughs> you just do what you can do with the materials you have. But being specific about it uh, could at least imply one thing. And and it's that at this time, you know, they had what was called the School of the Prophets. And that's the context where we got like the Word of Wisdom and, and so forth. And this is where there were all these discussions happening about, how they were supposed to go and spread the gospel, how they were going to organize the church, what the doctrine really was. They were kind of hammering out, making sure everybody was kind of on the same page, so to speak, right? This is where lectures on faith came from, all this sort of stuff. And for there to be some very specific instructions on something kind of alludes a little bit to what we get to in section 95, 
where it talks about all the contentions that arose in the school of the prophets. And so it could be that this is something to kind of like waylay the uh, contention that might come out of how are we going to build this and what size it's going to be and so forth. You know, if, it, if it's a revelation that says it's going to be this size and built in this way, then, you know, no more, no more uh, argument about it. Right. So I think that's a really good point because when you're dealing with a bunch of these really strong personalities and I can, I can only imagine they're on the frontier, the arguments about what this is going to look like. And, you know, you, you and I were talking about, at least for me, these sections seem to have a completely different tone than, than the previous sections. These, I didn't know how to, how to really say it. It's not quite so much as like God dictating this is, it's almost like Joseph asking a question that Joseph had already made some decisions as to what were going to happen. And he just wanted to get God's confirmation and approval and, and stamp. And so God's like, okay, then just do it this way. And Joe's like, okay, good. That was what I was going to do anyway. And then kind of, and there's nothing that says that in the text. It's just my own personal as I'm reading these things. So it's kind of standing out to me because the way this is written. So when you started talking about how there's like this impression that these revelations were kind of a different feeling that Joseph was kind of having to press forward without contention trying to find a way that's like, you know what, this is this is what the building is going to look like. It's just going to be this. It's going to be this. It's going to be this. We're going to have this upper room, this lower room. This thing is going to function that way. This thing's going to function that way. This one's going to be for the house of the presidency. This one's, you know, the second one's going to be for the printing and the translation. That's what it's going to be. And you just kind of like, now you just go do it. Right. And, and it, and it takes all of the, the guys, you know, Ben, you and I, when, uh, we met, we were just actually talking about, uh, um, selling, selling door to door pest control like 16 years ago. And, uh, and we were down in San Diego. And it's interesting is one of the things we learned with, uh, with pest control is that there, there are some customers that they really want the service and you know, they really want the service. And there's just something there that they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And you sometimes you just like, okay, let's just do this. We're just going to do this. And they're like, okay. And you can see like all this stress come out and all of a sudden they're happy and they're moving and, and they're excited and they go to, th and that was like the, the, the most stressful thing of the entire job was to come to these very few moments when these customers were, you know, you could tell they really wanted to, but I was just waiting for them to say yes. And then to kind of make the decision like, Hey, we're just going to do this. And they're going to be like, okay, yeah, I, I totally think we should do it. And it's like, they were just looking for confirmation of, of some sort anyway. And those turned out to be my best customers that signed on and stayed on the longest. Right. And they really loved the service. And so in a lot of ways, I think we have this human condition where there comes times in each one, every one of our lives where we, we know the right choice. We, we know it's there. And yet God sometimes just be like, God comes on. He's like, you know what? Let's just do it this way. And we're like, oh, thank you. Thank you. I just, I, I wanted to do it that way. I just needed somebody else to like tell, just kind of lead me along to it that way. And it and, and becomes a mercy. It kind of like alleviates that, that, that stressful burden of trying to make decisions. So in kind of that, that vibe, I see that here with, with 94, with how he's coming out. This is going to be the dimension. This is how we're going to do it. Um, maybe even this kind of picture of roof, this kind of thing, even if it comes down to micromanaging, this is just how it's going to happen. And then everyone's like, all right, cool. Then you just get to work and you get it done. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the previous section where particularly section 88, where there was the command that they were supposed to build something, you know, establish this house, right? It wasn't just metaphorical. They, they understood this, that there was literally supposed to be this section 95 comes along 
and chastises him for not doing it. So then section 94 is like, okay, so you didn't do it. And apparently you need some like very specific instructions on how to do it. Right. <laughs> so it's almost <laughs> like you go clean your room and you you know, your kid goes and they're just like, wall is around in their room. And then you like go and, and you go, okay, pick this up and put that away and then pick this up and you just like walk them through step by step. And then they're okay with it. At least. I have a kid like that, so I don't know if anybody else has been like that. They just they just need that like that step by step type of thing, right? You know this this yeah. Vague it looks too daunting. Clean your room is just like it's this too big a task, right? Establish a house, oh, and then there's like you know that that whole long list of things that this house is supposed to be. It's just this daunting task. Lord comes and says, no, no, it's just just make it this big, and then you're gonna teach in it and print scriptures. And they're like, oh, well, we can do that, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the vibe I get from that. That's uh, I have a, a child like that as well. So <laughs> I pretty much get that. One of the things that stood out to me verses 8 and 9 was this word unclean. And ye shall not suffer any unclean thing to come in unto it. And my glory shall be there, and my presence shall be there. And if there shall come into it any unclean thing, my glory shall not be there, and my presence shall not come into it. So I know we've talked before about this idea um, that seems to kind of seep into our our concept of God, that he is a germaphobe, right? Or um, like a cynophobe, <laughs> where if there's things unclean or there's sin around, it's like, ooh, he can't be there. And like, that just doesn't make any sense if you believe in Christ, right? <laughs> because like the whole concept of Christ is that He's there to purify it, and he actually goes after that, and he comes down and pulls you out of the metaphorical mud, right? I don't say it that way in order to poke fun at anybody else's beliefs. I say it that way to poke fun at my own because I know I have viewed it that way before, as if God is afraid, um, doesn't want to be around my sin, um, my uncleanliness, and I, I I don't I don't believe that it were, I or I don't um, I don't ascribe to that belief anymore. I should say. Then when I read eight and nine, like it seems to be saying something like that, right? But the word unclean, I think, is key here because in in ritualistic types of religious practice, the cleansing is the thing is the thing that you do to prepare yourself to be in a state of mind and sincerity in order to uh, exercise the mode with the most intentionality, right? And so it's it's simply a process you go through in order to get your heart in the right place to receive. And we all know about this, you know, like what do we do when we take the sacrament? First, we sing a hymn, like the whole concept of like, being quiet before and singing the hymn. And we tell our kids, hey, okay, now think really hard about Jesus. You know, like, <laughs> you know, all, the, all these things we do, like, why do we do them? Well, you know, uh, we may not know. We may not consciously know, but like if we, we really kind of think about, okay, why is it that I want to do this? Well, it's all to prepare myself to get into this state of mind. Is it a, is it a sin if I don't do that? No, not really. But we're missing out on something that we might have been able to connect with if we don't. And so 
uncleanness is not necessarily, now in some contexts it might be, but not necessarily in this context equated with sin, right? Someone can be unclean, but it doesn't mean they're wicked or sinful. It just means that they're not in a prepared state to intentionally experience that religious mode in order to get something out of it. And so um, here we have the Lord telling them, hey, when you're going to come into this house, this is a place in order to go through these particular religious modes of practice in order to connect with me. And so prepare yourself when you're coming in. And if you come in unprepared, it will be like I'm not there, right? You're not going to connect with that experience that you're going to have. So it's it's an epistemological type of thing. And so really, like, again, in, in ancient religions, especially, we see this all played out. The ritual cleanliness is something completely different from actual sin. Now, you, you go through ritual cleanliness in order to participate in the ceremony that then cleanses you from sin. But the, the thing that you're doing to prepare for that ceremony doesn't cleanse you from sin. It just makes you clean and prepared for the ritual, right? So, Yeah, so that, that really revolutionizes the way this whole thing operates mm-hmm. right? and, and how we understand this. Because yeah, <laughs> as you were talking, Ben, so I'm trying to figure out a way to say this to where it's not as – okay, I'll just go ahead and say it. So – it, with one of the companies that I worked for door to door, there was a, a couple of the leaders of the teams who they had rituals that they would perform every single morning when they got dropped off to go out and to go knock doors. Hmm. And, you know, so we met when we were selling pest control. I, I, I went on for like another 10 years doing door to door sales. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so this became my life. So, you know, you, you begin to see like all of these, these superstitions and these things that people do to try to get themselves in, into a frame of mindset and, and, you know, a certain mindset and, and to knock on, Two, three hundred doors a day and to be told no that much to keep your emotional fuel tank up to where you can keep on going out and talking to people and, and be ready for the one person who kind of maybe shows a little bit of interest. So you're not just a complete blob there on the front door, right? But, uh, they would have these little morning rituals that they would do once they got dropped off because that very first door that you knock on every single morning is always the hardest. And, and, <laughs> and so. There was this one guy, this one team leader who uh, his ritual, would he'd, he'd always wear biker shorts under his regular shorts and he'd get out, he'd throw his clipboard down on the ground and he would, he would, he would, he would drop his shorts down to the ground and he just have his biker shorts on underneath, right? So, <laughs> so he'd do that, but then he'd like tuck his shirt into his biker shorts underneath and, and then he'd pull his shorts back up and then he'd put the belt on. And he says, if I could do that kind of in public, it wasn't like public indecency because he had his biker shorts underneath. He says, but just the, just maybe the shocker, if anybody was looking at me, if I could do that, I could do anything. And that kind of psyched him into the day. Interesting. And so he'd go out and he goes, hell, right? And I, I, I'm going to decide to tell you against what this other guy did because that one, it just gets too much. But the, <laughs> the idea here is, is that you put yourself in this frame of the mindset to be able to go and to do the task at hand. And, you know, we even talked about, you know, this has got to be within the first two or three episodes that we did. Um, was it? Or when we did, was when we did like section seven, eight or nine with, uh, with Oliver Cowdery and the blood sticks, but Heber C. Kimball, you know, he has one of the, the blood sticks from Joseph Smith and Hiram. And he, he does like the, the whole, you know, the witching, you know, he asks this thing, yes or no questions and it goes up and down, but to get himself in the right frame of mind, he'd put on his temple clothes in his room and he would go through the ordinances of the temple there by himself to be able to put him in a frame of mind, to be able to ask his, 
this this blood stick, yes, no questions, and if it was yes, it would go up and down. If it was no, it would go side to side or in circles. And so that's how he would ask yes, no questions with the divine, and that's how he prepared himself for that. And and that was the context, and that was a kind of an acceptable thing back in, in those days to be able to kind of get your mind tuned to be able to what you're doing. So I love that there's this idea of cleanliness is this idea of becoming prepared for the thing which you are about to do. Because we, we've talked a lot about the rituals and ordinances of the gospel, such as baptism or the sacrament or anything that goes on in the temple. And each one of these rituals or ordinances or, or rites, they're all symbolic. Every single one of them are symbolic. In fact, we've talked about the whole temple, about how that's just one drama. It's, it's a four-part drama. It's one story. From the baptismal metaphysicalness to the to the initiation, which is an epistemology, to the to the uh, endowment, which is an ethical and a polit- political er- arena, into the ceiling, which is an aesthetic. All of these these are connected by one story, and and one drama. And so it's it's coming and connecting into this these, these symbols, and then manifesting in our lives what these symbols represent. And we've talked quite a bit about this. And so are, are we noticing in our lives when we participate with the sacrament, is, is this dead to us? Or are we finding what this thing symbolizes in our everyday life? Now, it, it's everything we talk about, you know, the whole renewing our baptism, you know, baptismal covenants, that's one narrative that we, we, we learn. It's, it's, it's recommitting to, to the gospel is another narrative we learn, um, but what else is it in our life? What, what is it on a daily basis? I've given my example of one time when I, I quote unquote, experienced my baptism for the first time, what my baptism symbolized for the first time in a highly transformative moment where I, was, I knew I would never be the same thing after as I, did, I was before. Um, anytime we have that aha moment where we see God differently and we know we'll never be able to see God the old way again, you know, that's a repentance process. That's that's living our baptism. The old us is dead. The new person has come forward. So in doing this, are we preparing ourselves? And what do we do? And, and you know, this is one of those things we can get into, like, talking about how we create the modality of experiencing God. Like, like what things what things can we do? Like, these trainers used to do on the door to psych them up to go on the door, or Heber C. Kimball used to do before he would start to ask for revelation through this stick or what we do in the ordinances of the temple what what rituals or what even things can we create ourselves to be able to put us into a frame of mindset and and so that's really what comes out to me as you were talking about this this cleanliness thing is not like a meta you're not metaphysically dirty and and i liked what you said there ben about like chasing god away god's not some pathetic creature that is like that is just scared to death about our sin you know it's like no God, you know, we learn from section 88, God is in and through all things that, that, that panentheism, he's just, he, he's, he's ever, he's above it all, but he's also that light of Christ is in and through all things. There's no place that we can go to escape that full brilliance of the light of Christ and, the, and, and of God. And to think that our sin is driving God away also makes our sin greater than God. And then what value is the atonement in that case? So that whole way of like chasing God away really creates in our mind this really small God that we can drive away from our sin. And, and, and what you said there, Ben, really brings in this new concept that God is bigger than our sin. 
God doesn't get chased away because of our sin. And we're going to talk about this again later on because, you know, he, he talks about not dwelling in, in, in unholy temp- temples, but, or unclean te- uh, temples, but that comes back to this thing as well, that this cleanliness is not a metaphysical state of being. It's a, it's a call for us to be able to perceive and to prepare ourselves mentally to be able to initiate in these things to where they become meaningful to us and we start to experience these things and manifest what these symbols mean in real life. And right, we you know, we symbolize symbols too. You know, so like cleanliness, um, you know, we do washings and anointings and then we have baptism that 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 has, you know, can symbolize a lot of different things, but you know, it's it's sometimes conceptualized in terms of of cleanliness. But these are all things that prepare us for that next experience, right? Um, you know, the baptism is supposed to prepare us then for the baptism of fire, the presence of God, right? The Holy Ghost. So that that really is is what that is. Like I said, we symbolize symbols even in our in our ordinances. Um, you know, uh, Judaic custom was the washing uh, of the hands. You know, before before eating, Jesus comes along. He says, "Look, you know." If that does that for you, that's fine. But just because people eat with unclean hands doesn't make them sinful, right? That's the, that's a that's a ritual thing in order to get a person in a frame of mind to to have an experience with God. But if it doesn't work for them, then it's then it doesn't work for them, right? Um, yeah. And and it's not sinful to not engage in it in just that way, right? It, it's a subjective type of of thing. Um, so. Anyway, you know, I, I think we've, we've gone on that. <laughs> section 95, um, yeah, chronologically um, goes before section 94. And again, I think that if you if you come to this and say, well, how does that, because he's chastising for not building the house that he just told him to build. Again, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning, actually, he's chastising him for not building the house that he um, gave the instruction to, it says here in the section heading in section 88. So if we go back to section 88, quite a ways back here, then... It's like December December of the year before. We've got to turn so many pages in this section. Yeah, so December of the year before. So we're talking six months, right? Not less than one month. And they haven't even started. They haven't done anything. So the Lord comes out with this this verse here. And, and, and I've always really liked this verse and it's taken on different meanings at different times. And I think this time I read it, it, it meant a little something different to me too. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you whom I love, and whom I love I also chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation, and I have loved you. Wherefore, you must needs be chastened and stand rebuked before my face. <clears throat> okay, so... We, we look up this word chasten in the dictionary because it's not a word that we use in our vernacular these days. And uh, look it up in the 1828 dictionary. And there's um, three definitions. And the first two talk about it being a punishment or affliction that's, that's put upon a person in order to make them change. Um, the last definition talks about it being a purification that happens. Now, these aren't necessarily, you know, mutually exclusive definitions um, of the same word, they, they definitely have a, a connection in them. But um, in, in the context of how section 95 then goes on to and flows and, and what we've been talking about so far, the, the concept of purification makes a whole lot more sense to what 
um, the sort of undercurrent narrative is here where the Lord is trying to prepare his people, right? And then we get into section 97 where he's talking about Zion and the pure in heart. What's happening here is a, a purification process, uh, a refinement process. Um, and it's it's not like this inflicting of, of punishment and pain intentionally um, because he loves us, right? You know, that's um, like in our 2021 context, that um, isn't a healthy relationship for someone to be inflicting pain because they love you, right? So <laughs> might have meant something right. to them back then, but uh, it doesn't really uh, it doesn't really float in our cultural context now. <laughs> yeah, th- there is a historical context where pain and purification go hand in hand right. and, and where that definition go hand in hand. And so people and there were entire orders of, of Christianity that believed you had to do like self-flagellation, you had to do like self-mutilation as a punishment to be able to purify yourself, right? So th- these these two words do go hand in hand. But I, I love here that in context here, I, I love the purify element here because this comes into that always already worthy, you're the true self, that purification also becomes an epistemic endeavor and not a metaphysical one. And by, and by that, it's always taking as the axiom that in reality, we are beings of light. We were created in the image of God, and God pronounced it good. Then at that point, the fall becomes this, this epistemic construct of, of what Christian mystics or like Thomas Merton would call the false self, where we begin to see the false reality. And the false reality we see are the, all of the identities and the meanings and the associations and the context that we have about ourselves and how we see ourselves, about how we see others seeing ourselves. And the identities that we have, and we're, we're comparing the, our own personal stories with other people's stories. And all of that, once we get to lay that down, and this gets into that Beatitude conversation, once we get to lay that down and be able to see ourselves again just as the true self, that thing that we've always been, that's the purification. It's the process of, and, and that's why repentance, when it says in the Bible dictionary, the LDS Bible dictionary, that repentance is changing our view and our, on our heart to be more in line with God, to see God in a different view and to see ourselves in the world around us. This is all a, a mental game where we're beginning to see the world differently. And so this purification I see here, not in a context of this metaphysical evil uncleanliness. You know, this goes back to, you know, we were just talking about with uncleanliness. It's not that we're physically, metaphysically dirty and we have to purify the physical self and, and make the false self something that it wasn't before. We were made in the image of God. That's who we are. That means that this purification, this chastisement, this chastening, this purification that's done through love is God is here and he's like, listen, I love you. I've loved you since before you could even comprehend what you were. You have always been with me and I have always been with you. Let me help you see what I see. And that's the purification. It's it's being able to see things as God sees them. And so when we see that, th- this takes on a whole new meaning. Thus saith the Lord unto you, whom I love, and whom I love I also purify, that their sins may be forgiven. Uh, you know, this forgiveness of sins, you know, when we look at sin as as either the breaking of modality or the weakening of modality, that forgiveness there is not some that you know, if I go out and I sin, 
this question has always come to my mind. Like, did I, how did I really offend? Why is it God forgiving me for, for, I didn't do this against God and God already knew I was going to do this. It's like, why, why this forgiveness element to it? And it's not that God needs to forgive me, but I need to recognize that those actions that were done were in the false self. And God is helping me become aware that those actions were of the false self. And it's in that that I'm, oh, I don't have to carry the guilt and shame of what that false self projected. And in that, there's a feeling of forgiveness, of relief, of something, of a burden being taken away, right? And so in this, that when he says that he's going to forgive sin, it's that we weaken the modality of the experience that he's calling us into. That, that's why we're talking about the cleanliness thing here. We're preparing ourselves to make these modes of worship manifest real experiences. And when we were not living that life to be able to manifest those things and go out and to actually produce these God moments, you know, I, I found of my own life at some point, it was, it was a kind of a jagged pill to swallow in that I knew I could talk about God. I knew I could discuss God. I knew that I could, I knew, I knew a lot of history about it. I knew, I knew a lot of doctrine about it, but I had never experienced the awe of God. That moment when you, it's like in that song in the hymn, How Great Thou Art. Oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder. And it's that awesome wonder I had never experienced before. And so in all my life, all of these things that I could talk about, I had never had the experience. And it, and it comes into these moments of preparing and these modalities of coming in and actually experiencing and pouring our intention in, our intentionality in through these things, where we begin to see that we strengthen these moments with God. He purifies and awakens our minds. And then we begin to experience that in which God is experiencing with us. And it's like that goes back to that beatitude that the, that the pure in heart see God. Those who are right. purified see God because we begin to see that light of Christ that's in and through all things. We begin to see the truth of all things. We see that we're made in the image of God. And we see ourselves more purely. And that comes back to repentance. We see God clearly, ourselves more clearly, the world around us more clearly. And everything just becomes more alive to us. Yeah, that's what I was seeing with verse 2 as you were talking, um, is that that purifying and then seeing the face of God, right? Right there in verse two, purifying before your face. You know, I, as I was reading this, um, right before we started the podcast and, and thinking about it again, I, uh, I had the impression after verse two that I should just go look at my children who are sleeping. So I went in and looked at my two-year-old son and just, stared at him. I know it's creepy for some people, but I'm a parent, so it's not creepy. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a parent, it's not creepy to stare at your sleeping children. <laughs> it's, there you go. <laughs> so we have a license. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it was, it was, there was a lot to the experience. Um, you know, there was, there was the moment where I'm walking into a darker room and so I couldn't see anything. And so I had to like, let my eyes adjust to see what was there before, you know, there was plenty of light, but my eyes couldn't, couldn't take it in. Right. And so then I, I just had to, I had to be there and wait and be still in order for my eyes to adjust and actually see that there was plenty of light in order to see his face. And, you know, staring at a, a baby sleeping, there's, there's nothing quite like it. 
And then I was thinking about what we talked about last week with this idea that we, <clears throat> and we talk about it a lot, but just the idea that we would look, you know, at another person and, and see the face of God and, and seeing that, and then going into my, my daughter's room and, and doing the same thing, you know, and, and staring and uh, seeing her there. And, uh, as I was walking out and coming back, I, I remembered the line from the, the, the Les Mis song, right? To love another person is to see the face of God. And uh, that just kind of fits in with these scriptures here, is that how, how much that that makes that connection for me, that, that relationship and that, that experience of love that, that allows me to, to see God in that person and then in myself and in that relationship. So. Yeah, I love that moment in lame is to love another person is to see a face of god that really does fit well into that pure in heart see god you know we were talking a couple weeks maybe last week or a couple weeks ago just about these experiences of seeing the divine because i i I don't know if anybody else is like me but that seems to be kind of like the the end all of experiences (laughs) if you can Mm. if you could actually see god you can have that theophany if you can actually come into the presence of god and see god and then it's like everything's over after that like right it's like where do you go from there you just saw the thing that everybody else has always wanted to see and and how how much have you prepared yourself to be there and yet in all of the experiences that we have of people seeing god the moment was miraculous but after the moment was over you could talk about it but it wasn't as transformative as we really think it is. People still keep on sinning. People keep on making mistakes. People get angry. We still experience life. We still have all these things. It's not like we are forever changed. You know, there's a way that we are changed because we have experiences that we can hearken back to, sure. But it's always being called into these new experiences. And so when I, when I think about this Loving another person is seeing the face of God, and the and that through the, the pure in heart we see the we see the face of God. For me, that doesn't have to actually be the literal metaphysical face of God. And in fact, I find it far far more meaningful when I find God's fingerprint, when I find His essence, when I find that light of Christ in the other. When I go into when I go into nature and I can see the manifestation of God's creation, and I can appreciate the Creator by by what has been created mm-hmm. and 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 to experience it that way um you know bruce armor conkey you know in his last testimony he, he you know several people have, have talked you know had he actually seen jesus or, or god when he said that in the coming days that you know he'll see god and, and and touch him and he won't know any better then that he does know now um and some and most people myself included i don't know if bruce armor conkey ever physically saw god but yet he had learned from his, from what his testimony is, he had learned that this is how he learned to see God. And that whether or not he saw his face or not was not the point. So, yeah, I love that part there with the, with the chastening and, and seeing God and the purifying and, and coming into the presence of God. I think it's a far more meaningful conversation than physically actually coming into the literal face sure. of God. <laughs> Sure. Well, I, it fits in with how Moroni talks about this as well. Actually, I guess it's Mormon in Moroni chapter seven, because Moroni is quoting Mormon. But um, he talks about, you know, 
if we develop charity and we have charity, then when Christ comes, we'll, we'll see him as he is because we will be like him, right? This, and then Alma says, talks about the image being our countenance and so forth, right? That when we've, when we've already had the experience where we realize that we can see God all around us in, in, in reality, in nature, in our fellow beings, in ourselves, then, then when we come to the moment of actually seeing him, it won't be some, I mean, it, I'm sure it'll be a great experience, but it, it won't be a completely unfamiliar experience to us is I guess what I mean, right? It will be a familiar experience because we will have already experienced something like it before. And, um, that, that's just, that's a, that seems like a new concept to me. Maybe it's not, maybe this is something that if, uh, you know, 10 years ago I was listening to myself and I'd be like, yeah, I, I totally get that. But it, it feels new to me. It feels, it feels fresh to me. The, the concept. Yeah. So I like that. So, um, over in verse six, we have something kind of goes along with this, uh, you know, just there's, there's this idea of a, a very grievous sin, which it, I feel is a, a little hyperbolic, but you know, scripture, that's one of the rhetorical, um, mechanisms that scripture uses a lot of times with, with hyperbole, this very grievous sin and the fact that they didn't build this building. Right. Um, but obviously there's a little more to it that's going on. And, and verse six kind of brings this out. It's like, Look, it's not about the building. It's about your, the way that your your attitude was towards this whole situation and how you're approaching this idea. And the sin in that they are walking in darkness at noonday, right? It's all around you, the manifestations of this light, and you are deliberately ignoring it, so to speak, right? Um there's this quote from Thomas Merton uh, that your wife posted uh, earlier today, Shallow. It says, uh, life is this simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. You know, it, it, it's, it just goes back to this concept. You know, we're walking in darkness at noonday and um, it, it all has to do with, with our uh, perception, where we're looking, what we're seeing. Do we have the spiritual eyes to see what is really there? Yeah. It really is. This, uh, I, I love that concept of walking in darkness at noonday or the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not from section 88. Um, you know, in verse seven, it comes down here to this. You should call your solemn assemblies that your fastings and your mornings might come up to the ears of the Lord of so both. You know, for me, this is this, hey, listen, I'm all, I'm here. I'm right here next to you. And I know you can't sense it yet. I know you can't, I know you probably what you're experiencing and what you're expecting is just not what I have in store for you. And you kind of, you're kind of walking on your own path right now. And that's okay. For, for me, I've, I've kind of lost this, this fear of being deceived. I, I think the culture kind of ingrained in me from from being very young, you know, this fear of being deceived. You know, you have to be right. You have to get the right answer. You know, eternity is the wrong thing to be wrong about. Um, and I just see a much more loving, compassionate, merciful God that is walking with us and is always there patient with us. 
And, and so in this way, he's like, Hey, listen, I, I know you're kind of walking this path and I, I know you, you really, you're trying to find me. You're consciously trying to find me and I'm here. And I know maybe you don't feel me all the time and maybe you don't know I'm there. And it's this walking in darkness at noonday. You know, there's times where I've, I've really needed God. I've really needed that companionship and that recognition and that, and the comfort and just hasn't been there. And, and there's a feeling of abandonment a lot of the times. And I, I think it's, it's a difficult conversation because we, we often want to say, well, that just means that I wasn't in a place and receptive. God was there and I just wasn't receptive to it and I wasn't ready for it or I had sinned and I wasn't, re- and, and whatever that had, you know, the radio, I hadn't tuned in just right to, to mm-hmm. hear God. And so it places all of the, you know, the, the shame and the accountability all on my shoulders. Well, the metaphors break down, you know, they're useful in certain contexts, but, but they always break down <laughs> in, in reality, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> but I think, <sighs> There came a time in my life where I was like, you know, that metaphor doesn't work for me anymore. Because if God's not there in my pain, then what? what's the point? And it's like, well, God knew that he could be there, you know, that, that you could endure it. And, and we come up with all of these words like, you know, God's not going to give you anything that you can't handle. And everything happens for a reason. And these are really, we, we should really stop saying this to anybody who's going through a traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. Um because they're just not helpful <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, but, but what I've learned is that when people go through a traumatic experience, there came a time here several years ago where it's a really long story, but my, but there were a couple of companies that owed my wife a lot of money with her company. My wife has her own uh, successful field trip company. And there were a lot of companies and schools that had owed her a significant amount of money at a time when it was right when my mom passed away and we're trying to pay for the funeral. Um, it was also just a lot, there were a lot of moving parts and because, uh, a lot of these people hadn't paid her for like, they were three or four months late in paying her. We were getting really low in our own cash reserves, trying to make good on, um, on our own uh, side of the business to our customers. And during that time, when you realize you're, you're going to lose everything, like, like you're going to lose your house. You're going to lose everything that you have. You're going to, you know, the possibilities, you start running all of these scenarios. And then at that point, you're like, who's going to possibly save us? Who's going to possibly be there to help us? It's like, there's nobody who can help us to the amount that we need to be helped. <laughs> I, I, it was ridiculous. And it's like, there's no amount of like someone coming over and bringing us cookies that was going to like, oh, that really hit the spot, right? <laughs> that just wasn't going to be the case, right? And and it was in that place where a lot of things started breaking down for me. It's like, well, how do you even mourn with those that mourn on a situation like this? Because for me, I want to fix this to make sure that I don't lose my house. And that's where my fear and my panic are directed. And I'm like, God, where are you? It's, it's, it's like, I'm doing everything right. Everything's, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything that I should, you know, where, and there was a period of several weeks where just when with, with my mom passing away and all of these things happening in my life, I'm just like, what gives? Well, I said a lot of other things to God than what gives, but <laughs> it, it boils down to what gives, right? And it, it didn't get better. And in fact, it, it got worse. And there were some people around who who we talked about and we knew about, but it was funny is that the thing that got us through the most was just that we did have a couple friends that we could talk to. And they couldn't do anything to help us. 
I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing they could do to help us get out of the situation. But yet they were there. And it wasn't until after the, I, you know, it's so overplayed. That Footprints poem is so over, overstated, <laughs> man. That thing's been around since. But it, 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 there's some truth there that a lot of the times when we look back, we realize that when we thought we were going through it alone, that God has always been right there next to us. And you're like, man, that sucks. It would have been good to know I wasn't alone when I was actually going through that trauma, right? But there's this recognition that, you know what? If I lose everything, I'm going to be okay. I still have my family. And if I lose my family, that was a financial business thing that was going on. I didn't have any, but, you know, but I, I've been in moments where with my mom passing away and I'm like, I'm literally losing my family. But it's okay because... I'll see her again too. And so there are certain comforts that I just, we can't, we can't fix people. And I think that's what we think is when we mourn with those that mourn, we come at it from a perspective of, I have a solution to fix you and to make you not be in that situation anymore. And we tend to want to put God in that category. God, you could do this, but you're not gonna, and you're not doing it. And you're not even around. But... When it comes down to it, we start to recognize that there's just a way of being with God where we recognize God's there even when we don't experience and we're not there in that experience with him. So anyway, I, I've gone well beyond what I was actually talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but this idea of walking in the darkness at noonday really strike, strike me because there's so many times in my life when I do feel like I'm walking in darkness yet I still have experiences of knowing that God is always there. And it's hard when you're walking through the darkness and in those dark, dark valleys and those, those dark nights of the soul where it's like, you, where's God in this? And, and you know, Joseph is going to experience this. Oh God, where art thou? And where's the pavilion right. that covereth thy hiding place? And so everyone goes through this. Yeah. I, I think that there's going to be moments that, Maybe we're not even in in those moments intended to to realize that that God really is there, um, but that that's part of the experience. Um, you know, even Christ had the moment where he said, "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me?" Right? He he felt alone. In multiple times, it, it, there was at least a time when Christ thought that his God had forsaken him, right? Wasn't there. Uh, there's not really much you can say in that moment. Like if if someone isn't feeling that God's there for them, um, you could be there with them, but... Um, there's not really a whole lot you're going to be able to say that's going to change things. And what I've experienced rather is that if you can be with them in that moment um, to, to at least help them know that they're not alone, then when they come into the realization that God always was there for them and, and that realization returns or, or becomes manifest, there is something like, and, and I don't know how else to describe it, something like a retroactive healing that happens where the, the pain 
um, the deep pain of, of that trauma that, that happened is at least in part healed and alleviated. And when, when there's the recognition that God was there with you before, um, that, that, like I said, there's sort of a retroactive healing that, that happens with that so that that experience no longer carries as much of, of the weight as it does before. And I have to be careful in saying that because I have to admit that I have not experienced near the trauma that, that certain people have. Um, but I, I have listened to some people talk about it in, in these terms. And, and although the things I have experienced don't even approach the scale that they do, you know, the, it, there's still a similarity in, in the, in the, um, the trajectory, I guess you could say of the experience, right. If, if, if I can explain it that way. So, um, I, I would guess there's some comparison there. Um, even though, like I said, I, I have not, I've not had, um, near the, the type of, um, intense trauma experiences that, that many people have. So, yeah, I think a lot of the time too, we, we, we tend to think that, you know, God will only give us what we can handle. And I must not be able to handle a lot because God doesn't seem to give me what he gives everybody else, right? <laughs> or maybe God gives me more. And so I was like, man, I wish God would, you know, would take some of this. I think, you know, life is just life. Right. And we create meaning everywhere. It's one of the ways that we get through. And we're going to talk, I have a little bit to say about meaning and creating meaning. We get into section, section 97. But yeah, it's, it's life is hard. You know, it, it, life is good. I love life, but life is sometimes really hard. And even when it's easy, <laughs> it's still sometimes hard. And, and yeah, I don't really have any, I'm not going in any direction with that. I, I, I just listened to what you were having to say. And I'm like, yeah, I, I feel that. But that still doesn't make those moments of, 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 of trauma that we all feel they're all heavy. Each, each one of us, you know, experience those heavy things, you know, going to verse 13 here in 95, I think there's a little bit, a little bit of an answer here. It says, now here is wisdom and the mind of the Lord. Let the house be built, not after the manner of the world. For I give not unto you that you shall live after the manner of the world. Well, come to find out this building is, it's, it's actually, 55 by 65, right? It, it, it kind of gives you know, this, the ideas here of what this is supposed to be. Um, so it's not the, the, the manner of the building, like the physical building. It's, it's the sacredness that we're supposed to step into. Right. It's that moment when God takes all of us where we are at. Whatever trauma we experience, and God is never comparing us. He's never like, you know what? You shouldn't be complaining so much. Look at this guy over here, Right. I've never had God do that to me. And maybe other people have, and maybe that, that's kind of how, you know, people kind of get themselves up and going. And maybe, but just that, that God's never compared me to another person and being like, this person's over here. You need to buck yourself up. Look how much worse they have. They're starving people and, you know, children in China. Um, it's just not the way that God's dealt with me. But God has pulled me into these moments of the sacred. And he's like, listen, wherever you're at, it was one of the things I used to teach my seminary class. It's like, no, it doesn't matter how far away from the rod of iron you feel that you've walked. The path back is as fast as the next choice. That coming back to the rod of iron, you're only one step away. It's one choice. 
So no matter how many steps away you feel you've gone, coming back is just one step, one choice, right? And so in this, this, God's not trying to give us experiences like the world gives us experiences. He's, he's seeking to bring us into those moments of awe, those moments that flatten us, those moments that just be like, to this, I know that man is nothing, a thing I had never before supposed, right? And in each one of our lives, it's going to be different. And it's not to say that there's one objective experience that we're all supposed to get to. Each one of us are going to be able to experience these things in our own particular way. So what I experience is going to be different than what you experience, Ben, and what you experience is going to be different than what anybody else experiences. It's going to be unique to us, but God is going to draw us into that conversation and bring us into that if we let him. Yeah. You know, you said the the phrase, the often repeated phrase, life is hard, and and. I always laugh at this little rhetorical question that always comes in the back of my mind when everybody some somebody says that, and it's like compared to what? <laughs> <laughs> my expectation that it shouldn't be this way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Compared to my own <laughs> made up expectations, you know, compared to what I don't know what I see in the movies. I don't know. Life is hard. Uh, compared to what? Um, and and like I said, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but it makes you think. It's like okay, you know, this is life is just what it is. You know, and, and and we can call it hard, but it is just what it is. It's the experience that we're having. And um, I the the one of the central concepts of having faith in God is the assurance that one day we'll be able to look back on life and proclaim it good. Not because the ex- individual experiences were good, but because we experienced them because of who we are i think we talked about this last time that that life is good because of us not because of any particular experience um, but because we're the actual individual having those experiences and so when we look back on it we'll be able to to proclaim it good and all of the, the sorrow and the sadness and the pain we'll be able to look back on with satisfaction in, in some way. And I don't know how that exactly will be possible, but it, you know, it reminds me of the scripture in Revelation that said, you know, all their, says all their tears will be dried. Uh, you know, all that pain, that trauma, that sorrow will, will be washed away. So um, we said we were going to skip section 96. Or, or we just <laughs> <laughs> So I love Newell K. Whitney. I've been in his store. I've been in his store and mm-hmm. uh, good job for doing that. And, and John Johnson, I've been to his farm and good job for doing that too. So that's about what I have for section 86. <laughs> yeah. We went on a trip out East um, just this spring and everything was still closed for COVID. We were able to walk through uh, the sacred grove but the visitor center was closed. We were able to walk on um, Hilkamora. Uh, visitor center was closed. We were able to go to the Kirtland Temple and just walk around it, um, but it was closed. So uh, we didn't go to the John Johnson Farm or, or any of that, any of the stuff in, in Kirt- any of the other stuff in Kirtland. Again, like everything was closed. Um, so someday we'll go back and, and do that. I knew my wife got to go to the John Johnson farm. She said that that was for her, uh, a special place in particular. She felt like it was, uh, something particularly special. 
for her to to go there. So yeah, that was that was my wife. That was Rachel and I's experience as well um, when we got to the John Johnson farm. There's there's something different about that place. Um, I, I like the intentionality that his wife gave to everything. She was very particular with how she created, you know, she, they have an outside, they have two kitchens, like, like an inside outside kitchen, you know, and she designed it meticulously for the day. So it's, it's very state of the art for the day and very meticulous. And you can see there's a lot of personalization that went into who those people were and how the gospel manifest, like section 76, the vision was given there. And, and so there's a lot of beautiful things that happen. I, I do. I, I had that same shared experience. You know, it's interesting because there's a part of me that's like, well, you know, there's nothing particular, there's nothing objectively or even metaphysically um, holy about a place, right? It all has to do with what we as individuals bring to that place. And I know you've talked about this before in, in, in religious studies context. Um, mm-hmm. And so like there's this part of me that wants to say that it's just like well a place is holy because you you make it holy or you you believe it is right and 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 that's the context that you you put it in but having said that i can think of two places just like general places not like a specific place but um a general location um that i've been to in the world um two places that when i when i've been there i there was something different for me about that place. And it, it wasn't because I was bringing to it or I didn't think at the time, maybe I need to examine this more. It didn't feel like at the time it was because I was bringing to it any preconceived notions. Um, There was something about just like going to the place that suddenly there was like, it was something external to me that, that I was stepping into some, a holy place. And, um, the first time I had that experience was when I was a missionary and there was this, this city that I was transferred to up, um, in the mountains of Northern Italy. And just like, when I got there, it was, there was just something about it that it just like grabbed onto my heart. (laughs) And, um, and then the, the other time that it happened in a little different way was the first time that I went to Manti in Utah. And like my wife and I were just driving through and it was just like, as we got closer and closer into Manti, I was just like feeling more and more, um, I don't know how to explain it, like feeling more and more on holy ground. And um, again, that this uh, part of me wants to just say that, oh, this is entirely like my own subjective, you know, perception that I'm imposing on these places. But like, it was it was something that I, I didn't think I had necessarily a preconceived notion, and and I went into the place and I felt like it was imposed on me. So I don't know if you had anything like that happen. Yeah, those are amazing experiences, and I don't have good answers for them because yeah, there's in religious studies there's this this conversation about religious experience about whether or not there's an objective religious experience like what you're talking about that like it's imposed upon you as opposed to you know you're going out there and interpreting it. And then that's called sui generis. But then there's this other experience that you bring it to the table and and you bring the meaning and the, and and that's where we have these is called these deemed experiences. We deem these to have meaning. And there's religious philosophers on both sides of this. And every time I read one, I'm like, yep, that's exactly how it is. And, and, and that's it. And then I read the other person. I'm like, gosh, dang it. That's how it is too. And (laughs) I don't have, I don't have a good, I don't have a good explanation. Um, 
yeah, there have been a few moments in my life when I have just been like, oh, and it's just, it like take almost for me, it's, it moments that almost like take my breath away. And, and you come into these moments of just, oh, wow. And, and, and I, I don't know how else to just describe it. You can't see me through, <laughs> through the audio, but it's like your whole body, your whole, my whole body just goes, oh, and my shoulders come down and my body comes down and, and just every, all the stress is, I, I begin to realize how stressed I was because everything just lets go. And I'm like, and just to come into that moment to that singular, singular moment. Like when you get in a hot tub. <laughs> is that a holy space for you? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, on section 97 here, you know, we can spend, we could probably spend a whole hour and a half on section 97 alone too. Um, there's just, there's a lot of good stuff. Verily, verily, I say unto you, my friends, I speak unto you with my voice, even the voice of my spirit. I may show unto you my will concerning your brethren in the land of Zion, many of whom are truly humble and seeking diligently to learn wisdom and to find truth. So we, we have to remember that in, in 1833 and during this time, they're having some, some major, uh, some major issues going on down in Missouri. This is the time down in Jackson. So a little, a little bit of history when, when the church was first organized in April of 1830, uh, within a, within only a couple months, they ended up sending missionaries down, right? So you had like Oliver Cowdery and Parley Pratt, and they ended up going down to Missouri because the idea was, is that the book of Mormon here is written for the American Indians. They, all the American Indians are the, are the, uh, the children of Lehi, all, you know, all of them that are there in, uh, at least in Missouri. Um, you know, there's a lot of arguments about whether or not they meant North and South America or they meant all of the Native American Indians, you know, Mormon. It's a moving target. Sure. The point was that these people at this time, that was the way they viewed it. So, they, yeah. So at the people at this time, those Native Americans at that particular place, just across the border of Missouri, were where they were going to start planting their flag to convert the seat of Lehi. So, they go down there, and along the way, that's when they stop into Kirtland, and that's when they come in uh, Parley B. Pratt's old preaching buddies with Sidney Rigdon. Um, that's when Sidney Rigdon comes into context, and and his, uh, his, a lot of his congregation is baptized. Then the missionaries keep moving on down to Missouri, right? And so now that these missionaries are down in, in Missouri, that the Native American uh, mission... Yeah, it, it, it's complicated, but it was a failure. So yeah. they end up coming back into Missouri. Out. Didn't pan out. And, you know, a lot of it was government induced. A lot of it was just cultural induced, you know, and uh, this is during the age of, you know, Jacksonian democracy, the trail of tears, um, Indian displacement. There's a lot of fears concerning, uh, anybody who wants to make friends with the Indians. The U.S. government's trying to, um, disenfranchise and make the Indians um, not real human beings because you can't really promote a manifest destiny narrative of expanding West where there's people there if you really consider them to be people. Mm -hmm. So anyway, there's a lot of layers to that story, but th they end up there in Jackson and, and to say that the Latter-day Saints were not, they were, they considered themselves many degrees better than their Missouri neighbors. And, you know, these are frontiersmen. And so, you know, to a certain account, they're, they're right. When Joseph went down there and visited for the first time, he's like, wow, wow, this is not is what I thought this was. And, and so even Joseph is taken back a little bit because he's like, wow, this is, this is not, this is not up and coming. This is, this is really yokel. <laughs> You're just really trying to dance around a lot of terms there. So that's good. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was trying to find one word and I couldn't find it. So I'm like, okay, how many, how many words can I use to describe the one word I'm looking for? But, uh, <laughs> so, so you have the saints here in Jackson County who are doing what they can to build the church, but they're also, they're good neighbors, but they're not really, really good neighbors. And, there's fears of voting, you know, vote, having a voting block where they all vote on the same issue at the same time. These are during, the, you know, the age of boom towns. And so you have investors coming into little itty bitty you know, settlements on a river and in, in promising the, these little settlers on a river that if, if they buy up all the land that, that, you know, they'll go find investors back east and, and give them a part of the proceeds. And, and so you have these little settlers who go out there and who are thinking they're going to make a lot of money. And then the only neighbors that move in are Mormons. And these Mormons are, have the narrative that God gave them this land and that they're going to get kicked in that these Gentiles are going to get kicked off of it and that God's not going to have a room. So they either have to convert or get off their land. And it just, it doesn't cause a lot of really good fellowship. Right. So there's, there's a lot of, so finally, a lot of this comes to to a head when uh, William, William Phelps, W. W. Phelps, ends up talking in the uh, has a newspaper where he he prints this article and it's 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 not supposed to be in favor of um, of African Americans or or, or uh, freed slaves coming into Missouri, but it was just this thing like we don't have anything against. Um, against, you know, sl- slavery, um, or, or we're not for slavery. And it was, it was supposed to be a really benign article, but the Missourians took this, that the Mormons were for abolition and for freeing all the slaves. And they were trying to recruit all of the African-Americans to come to Missouri and Missouri was still a slave state. And so then W.W. Phelps had to do a retraction where he's like, no, we don't, we don't, you know, we're not even going to baptize anybody. We're not going to do anything with the black. We think that they should be slaves. And, and, and so then he like goes completely the opposite way, right? Just to try to appease it. And so then the, there's just a lot of um, dominoes that ended up falling to where the Jackson County Missourians don't want the saints there anymore and they get kicked out. And that's when they get kicked out in uh, this kind of 1833, 1834 push. Kicks them out of Jackson County, they end up in Clay County, and then from Clay County, they'll eventually go into uh, Caldwell County, where Missouri actually gives them their own county. So from like 1834 until 1830, you know, the end of 1837, the beginning of 1838, the Mormons actually got along really well with their neighbors. Yeah, Caldwell County was Mormon County, so to speak. Yeah, it was Mormon County. You know, that was specifically for the Mormons. That was their gathering county. And they weren't supposed to go outside of that, but they did. And there's a really long story there, but... You know, the, the Mormons ended up causing actually a lot of bad blood. Um, Sidney Rigdon had two famous uh, sermons in uh, the summer of 1838 that turned peaceful Missourians against the church unnecessarily. And so that caused, uh, that would eventually cause the extermination order in October of 1838. But during this time in uh, section 97, this is when some of these pers- initial persecutions, the first wave of persecutions happened. So we have to remember there's two waves of persecution from the Missourians. One where they get kicked out of Jackson County in 1833 to 1834, and then again in 1838. So this is going to be the first wave. And all of this is going to be talking to building Zion in that Jackson County setting. So, Yeah, so, I mean, verse 2, you know, just I'm going to pick up where you left off here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, blessed are such, for they shall obtain, for I the Lord show mercy unto all the meek, and upon all whomever I will, that I may be justified when I shall bring them unto judgment. 
So, um, you know, some beatitude allusions there. But uh, this last part is interesting. You know, he talks about showing mercy so that I may be justified when I shall bring them into judgment. And that is an interesting way to link uh, mercy and and being justified, so to speak, with the way that he, he treats and, and forgives his people. You know, some other things. In section 97, we have uh, the recurrence of this word chastened. Verse 6, to the residue of the school, I, the Lord, am willing to show mercy. Nevertheless, there are those that must needs be chastened, and their work shall be made known. Verse 7, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be hewn down and cast into the fire. I, the Lord, have spoken it. But we'll continue this, this discussion here, this, this metaphor, but we're bringing up trees and axes and chopping them down and so forth. This takes us back to the discussion of the weed and the tares, right? That there's there's something growing that shouldn't be and it needs to be violently removed. The inclination here may be to equate the actual thing growing with the person, like a, an individual. But metaphorically, that's not what's going on here. We're talking about the desires and intentions and um, you know false self, so to speak, that's going on within an individual themselves. The trees within them, these ideas that that bear fruit. And then the question is, is that good fruit? Is that bad fruit? That tree needs to be removed. The axe is laid at the, at the root of it, so to speak. So as this bears out, he's not talking about people or individuals as trees. He's talking about the trees being the, um, the ideologies or the, the thoughts and intents of individuals. So yeah, I like that. That that that's a good uh, good way of showing that because you know we've talked about the uh, these analogies about the burning of the of the trees, right? And about turning it to ash and about the use of the ash. The ash. Yeah, the people who understand these kind of ancient metaphors, they know what the ash is used for. It has to go back into the soil. So there's nothing that is ever burned that's not reincorporated back into the soil, which then the tree uses to to get its to get its it, the water that it needs to be able to grow, which to produce the fruit. So. These allegories and these analogies, these metaphors are all supposed to be that God is using all of his children in certain spaces. Hey, and if, if, if you're not bringing forth good fruit, well, let's, let's transform what you're doing and, and include you back into the root so that, so that, you know, you, this will serve to bring forth other good fruit. And, and so it's always using everyone for God's purpose. And there's never anyone who's not in that conversation of God's purpose. And that's where that chastening comes in, of that purification. So it's just, I love that way of looking at it because in that particular way, we're we're not just consigning someone to like, oh, you screwed up, and now you're in hell. You get axed. You get get axed, right? And then in verse eight, this is where we start getting into suffering sacrifice narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, Verily, I say unto you, all all among them who know their hearts are honest and are broken, and their spirits contrite, and they are willing to observe their covenants by sacrifice. Yea, every sacrifice which I, the Lord, shall command, they are accepted of me. So, sacrifice is really to make sacred. And, you know, there's a couple different ways to to be able to talk about sacrifice. One is of giving up something of one value for something of greater value, for, you know, lesser value for greater value. And, and that's kind of how it's been ana- given in a lot that I've heard a lot in a lot of Sunday schools and, and the analogy that, that we have. 
But sacrifice is this really interesting concept because it invokes a type of ignorance. Sacrifice can only be sacrifice if what we are giving up or what we are expending or what is going on right now. It's not guaranteed, like in, in an epistemological sense. Exactly. Yeah, it's not guaranteed. We don't know. We don't see the causal link. You know, we, I was talking before the, uh, we were talking before the podcast and I was like, if there was a machine where you had a spiritual dollar and you put a spiritual dollar in and you give up something of one value, but immediately kicked out two spiritual dollars and it's like, wow, that was really interesting. It just as one went in, two of them came out. That would not be a sacrifice to give up something of one value for a greater value because the reward was immediate. It was in the same kind and there was no, there was no ignorance involved. There was no not knowing involved. Like it was instantaneous. That's not sacrifice. So sacrifice involves putting in a spiritual dollar and then six months later, you know, someone comes up and gives you a hug. <laughs> you don't see the correlated event, right? It's, it's, you don't see how if you sacrifice here. And, and so in a lot of ways, like we talked about uh, when we, at the very beginning, this is where we start create meaning. This is where meaning begins to be a thing because meaning is the bridge that we create between the things that we sacrifice and the blessings that we receive. And so it's like, we start to connect it. I was like, is there really any correlation between the fact that I put in a spiritual dollar and I got a hug six months later? Like it, it, maybe some things come where you can see the automatic causal link, like, you know, working out, it's a long-term gig. You diet and work out, and you're going to have changes over a prolonged period of time. It's not going to be instantaneous, but you're going to document and you're going to see the changes. But with the gospel, it doesn't always work like that. In fact, it seldom works like that. Because I've experienced in my own life where I've lived what's called the checklist gospel. Where you're doing everything, like, like, you know, make sure all the boxes are checked. You said all your prayers, read all your scriptures, did all the things you're supposed to. And this is supposed to bring you happiness. And yet you're not. And it sucks. And, and so all the checklist gospel leaves you just like, there's the, what I was supposed to get from this, this quid pro quo, this I put in a spiritual dollar, I get $2 back thing isn't working. And so you're like, what gives? And so then we start creating meanings about like, okay, well, this is what happened then. And we start attaching those things and it can get complicated really quick. So it, it is a complicated conversation. It's an easy concept to get, but once we really apply it to our lives, sometimes it can get really complicated really fast. You know, the, the root of the word sacrifice, which might be separate from how we actually practice and experience it, but it, you know, just in a linguistic sense, the root of the word, you know, means to make sacred. And in other words, we use the word set apart in our vernacular, even in the church. We talk about that in terms of like for callings and stuff. So uh, sacrifice, um, you know, in uh, in ancient uh, Israel, Judaism, their, their concept of uh, sacrifice when they would take an animal to actually go and, and sacrifice, they actually lay their hands. It was the laying on of hands of the animal and they'd set the animal apart to be sacrificed. Right. So they're kind of, those concepts are kind of tied together. So whenever there's something we sacrifice, it's something that we've set apart for a particular special purpose. And that purpose is something that is dedicated towards 
furthering our relationship with God or helping us move into and and have an experience with God. Okay, so that can be done in multiple ways. One of the ways that we do it is the Sabbath day. Okay, so we have one day in seven that we set apart, right? It's set aside for the the expressed intent of us focusing on a relationship with God for the entire day, right? That's that's the intent of this thing or the express intent of it. And so there's all kinds of things like that. You know, we set aside uh, fast offerings and the intent of this is that we're supposed to use it to go and build a relationship or increase our awareness of those who are in need so that we bring out our uh, empathy and awareness of how we're supposed to interact with other people and love them. So th- there's like there's all these kinds of things with sacrifice that we're, that we're actually to do to, to set something aside so that we can dedicate it towards a particular purpose and intention that helps us experience God in our lives, whether it's through our relationships with others or our own time or our own means or, or, or whatever. And so by doing that, we're making the, we say we're making this thing sacred, but the sacrifice is supposed to make us sacred, right? We're supposed to be setting apart, to go back to that Michelangelo analogy of, of the, the statues, right? The sacrifice is, is that part that, that maybe we metaphorically take away that reveals the true self, right? So it might be the thing we do that helps reveal who we truly are in that moment so that we can see it. Whereas in other moments, we not we may not really realize or see that, but it's something that we do that brings us into that realization, a uh, moment of realization of that. So we're, we're making ourselves sacred, so to speak, by by symbolically giving up something or setting something aside and quote unquote, making it holy or sacred. So, And what I really like about what you're talking about is because every, what looking at sacrifice that way does is it completely solves the other bad way of sacrifice that I was talking about. That, that way of looking at it as like the prolonged blessing. Hmm. Because it changes the entire narrative to where sacrifice is not about this prolonged, long cycle blessing. Mm. It's it's about it's about that moment of being being made sacred. So when we stop looking at sacrifice in this quid pro quo checklist kind of way, I do this, God's going to give me blessings here. Like I, I give up this of less value, God gives me something of greater value, and we look at it just like what you were talking about, Ben, in that that making sacred right now, preparing my heart and mind now. Then all of a sudden, it's exactly like we were talking about. If there is a spiritual dollar that we put in, then it's that itself becomes those moments of cleanliness. Talking about unclean, of preparing ourselves. Yeah. Those become the things that prepare ourselves to become aware and to experience that thing which is already present to us. We think, I think we sometimes think too linearly to where it's like, yeah, I put in my money here and my blessings are going to come out over there. But from what you're talking about, Ben, this really kind of solves this whole issue because at that point, it's not about that linear. It's not a future experience we're we're banking for. It's actually right, right then. Let's let's just take tithing. Like if tithing is 
is a something that someone uses uh, as a mode of sacrifice, right? The, the moment you write the check, so to speak, right, or fill out the form or whatever, and you are relinquishing that as, as part of something that you quote unquote own and, and, and you're setting it aside, that is it. That's it. That's the experience. Or, you know, maybe you don't experience it in that moment. Maybe, maybe you don't experience it until the next day when you go to your bank account and you're like, oh, it's less than I thought. <laughs> and you're like, no, there's a reason it's less than I thought. And it's the way I want it to be. And it's because of this. Boom. That's it. That's the moment of the experience. At least for me, uh, you know, I, I, I accept that other people can experience the sacrifice in different ways. But, but it's not, it's not with the intention, you know, I'm going to do this because it could be that in a couple months or a few months, I might be low on funds. And, and I know that, you know, uh, Santa Claus is going to show up and, and, you know, rain presents on me. Right. Um, that, that's not, that's not it. So. Yeah. So it, you know, we talk about it in terms of to make sacred when the the more consistent way is to become aware of the sacred that already exists. Hmm. It's, it's that moment, you know, you said uh, it's an immediate thing. It's the right here. It's the right now. And that's what like the Beatitudes are. It's blessed are. It's not blessed will be. It's not blessed can be. It's blessed shall be. It's blessed are. The blessedness is now. And, and so it's coming into recognizing what that means in the present moment you know, once we write that check or once we, we say that prayer, once we have that sacrament, once we have that prayer, it's, it, it's becoming present to that moment, right? Yeah. And so, you know, you said tithing. I don't know if you were trying to get into verse 12. Behold, this is the tithing and oh. the sacrifice which I, the Lord, require at their hands that there may be a house built unto me for the salvation of Zion, for a place of thanksgiving for all saints and for a place of instruction for all those who are called to the work of the ministry and all their several callings and offices, that they may be perfected in the understanding of their ministry in theory, in principle, and in doctrine in all things pertaining to the kingdom of God on earth and the keys of which kingdom have been conferred upon you. you know, so this goes in, the, the, we're just building modes of experience and we're pouring our intentionality into these things. And, and so that tithing then becomes a moment of becoming aware of the sacredness and experience in that very moment. And the sacredness is not that we're, we're chipping away at, uh, we're chipping away at the, at the false perception. It's not that we're a, a wicked, perverse thing and we're actually becoming more holy. It's that we're becoming more aware of the holiness that already exists. Right. And, and so this, that leads us into, into 16. And my presence shall be there, for I will come into it, and the pure in heart shall come in unto and shall see God. No more beatitude. But if it be defiled, I will not come into it, and my glory shall not be there, for I will not come into unholy temples. You know, so this comes back to that previous conversation that we had at the beginning about, you know, is God so timid where he's like, I'm just, I'm just not going to come into that. That's dirty. That's just yeah. dirty. I'm not going to come in. Because yeah, ew. ew. <laughs> That's not God. Christ descended below all things. He's been to the bottom of all things. It's that God God never has never validated the false self to me. My false self, God has never validated that. God loves me too much to validate that. 
God's work in glory is to bring me to become aware of what I, what he created, the image that he is in his countenance, that thing which I already always am, and he's just helping me become aware of it. Because in my false self, I act against what I am all the time. And he's not going to validate that false self notion of me that is defiled or that is that is dirty, which I perceive as dirty. He's not going to validate that for me. He's not going to come into me like, yep, that's it. Stay in that thing. It's always an awareness and always bringing us into something that is that an awareness of what he created and called good. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, we talked about it in the last section, this use of the word temples is actually still more referring to uh, us, our, our bodies, right? Or, or who we are um, as individuals. It talks about the, the elements or the tabernacle of God, and it says even temples. I think that's what uh, section 93 talks. We talked about that last time. And so like here are temples um, it, it's not quite conceptualized. You know, there's this idea that they're going to build something eventually, but it's not conceptualized of in, in the way that we see temples now. So like this word temples is actually um, to them within their meaning, referring more to the individual persons and and what it is that, that uh, God validates within that person. So I think it fits with what you were talking about in terms of like the false self and, and true self. Yeah, and, and going in here into this, into verses 18 through 21, it talks about Zion and about bringing Zion out and bringing Zion forward in verse 21. For this is Zion, the pure in heart. Therefore, let Zion rejoice with all the wicked and, and all the wicked shall mourn. And lo, vengeance cometh speedily upon the ungodly as the whirlwind. And who shall escape it? The Lord's scourge shall pass over by night and by day, and the report thereof shall vex the people. Yea, it shall not be stayed until the Lord shall come. For the indignation of the Lord is kindled against their abominations and all their wicked works. Nevertheless, Zion shall escape if she observes to do all things whatsoever I have commanded of her. Okay. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, gotta love ver- these other verses where, where you just you love. You're like, wow, what's what's God getting at, and and what was Joseph seeing, and what was the context that he was experiencing these things, right? Yeah. But you know, we have this vengeful God who comes with whirlwinds. This kind of invokes images of Third Nephi, and and the Lord's scourge passed over night and by day, and then vex all the people. And why is God doing this? Well. Yeah, I think it comes back to a lot of the time. Is this is this what God is doing, or is this what the false self sees that God is doing? For those who are not coming into the beatitude conversation, God will often look like a transactional, vengeful God. It's coming into that awareness of letting go of the quid pro quo, because the fall of Adam, that dualism that came from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that seeing things epistemically by their opposites— See, in reality, there's no such thing as hot or cold, right? There's no such thing. As, it's just light is a particular wavelength, and we define light as this particular way and dark as this particular way. There's a whole spectrum of light that we don't even see. So this concept of light and darkness and our concept, my dog can see really well in the dark, right? It has a completely different spectrum of light and dark than I do. And so everything by their opposites has to do with my own perception, 
temperature is just temperature. I exist at a particular temperature. If I get too hot, I die. If I get too cold, I die. That's where my body, because of the earth and the temperature and the things that I regulate, I'm the one that decides whether or not something is hot or cold. But that's me. So I, I'm the discerning thing that sees things by its dualism, by its, its opposite. But in reality, the whole thing is to coming back into the unity of God. And so when the false self sees God doing this and it sees all of these things happening, this I'm wicked and these bad things, God's going to punish me, that really becomes the perception of the fallen, that fallen epistemic perception about how we see God. You know, that kind of fits with these words, like in verse 23, we have these words scourge and vex. These are experiential terms, like phenomenological terms, right? These are something that somebody has to experience a scourge for it to be a scourge. Somebody has to be vexed in order for there to be a vexation, right? And so, yeah, you know, it's a, that's a subjective type of experience thing. I think it's interesting when we come over here with verse 25, nevertheless, Zion shall escape if she observed to do all things whatsoever I shall command her. Okay, so we're talking about, ostensibly in these scriptures, we're talking about physical destruction, right? Like natural disasters is probably what is is thought of at this time as what we even call to this day in legalistic terms, quote unquote, acts of God, right? These are natural disasters that couldn't be prevented. They're a greater force that, that can't be mitigated against by our own, by human capabilities at this time, point in time, right? And so we have to look at these things and like in a scriptural context, we might say, okay, this happens and that's to punish the wicked. We actually go and look at natural disasters throughout history. There's never been a natural disaster that only ever killed wicked people, right? <laughs> it doesn't happen. When natural disasters happen, they kill just as many good people as bad people, right? It, it, there's no God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. If the rain is good in that context, it also can rain could be a good thing, but too much rain could be a bad thing. And so the wicked and the righteous both experience objectively the same thing. But I think the key here is in understanding just what you were talking about is that the subjective experience for this can be very different in how people perceive it, how they respond to it, and what meaning they pull from it. I was thinking about some of the experiences that I've had in sort of like disaster relief going to areas where people have had their homes flooded or destroyed by, by natural disasters and being able to help them or talk with them and, and see what they're experiencing in, in some certain degree and realizing that like how we as a society or as a people choose to respond to these types of things makes all the difference in how they're experienced both by us and the people who actually had these things happen to them. And we can either these things can either happen in a society that that does that chooses not to to reach out and, and care for and uplift and mourn with those that mourn and comfort those and and give them aid when they need aid, or a society that does do all of those things. And what's a society that does all of those things? I mean, that would be Zion, right? A society that that really does fulfill all those needs even when natural disasters happen. I don't see Zion as, as a place that's exempt from natural disasters. It's a place that when these things happen, they're there to be with each other and help each other and lift each other up so that these aren't 
don't have to be just a completely lonely, catastrophic experience for any one person, but rather can be a a galvanizing experience, something that brings people together um, rather than, than devastating society. That's awesome. Well, do you have anything else there in uh, in the last three verses or anything else that, uh, that you wanted to talk about, Ben? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I was kind of looking at everything else and I think I was like, I think I, I talked about everything I wanted to, I marked down and thought. Well, awesome. Then. Well, next week we will be going over section 98 and getting into, uh, getting into a bunch of great, great discussion. I'm looking at like, man, how can we, how can we make that? I don't know how we're going to make that small, that shorter. I well, yeah. go back and listen to the other ones we did on it and be like, <laughs> I don't believe that anymore. Or, <laughs> not responsible for anything I said more than six months ago. That's awesome. Six months. I'm thinking six days. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you everybody for sticking around and, uh, and we will see you back next week when we talk to, to talk about section 98. Until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.